So this service I gave back in 2007. So there's going to be some references in here from where we were in 2007. It's about morality and how it sort of changes over time. So it's a good, it's actually a good example. So some of the things I'll bring up were really important topics at the time, and, and we've moved forward and moved past them. So it's kind of interesting over the 12 years that has passed. But morality, by definition, is a system of determining right and wrong that's established by some authority, such as a church, or an organization, a society, or our government. And what I'm going to try to explain is that we do not get our morality from that authority. But in a very humanistic way, our morality is formed by consensus, a consensus that evolves progressively despite the authorities. It's a common perception that without God or religion serving as our moral compass, society would crumble. Many believe that they have learned their moral values through their religion. They believe that morality can only come from a religious teaching, and therefore non-believers lack moral values. In some circles, atheism and immorality go hand in hand. Um, do a Google search on immoral atheist, and you'll get almost a million hits. Albert Einstein is quoted as saying, if people are good only because they fear punishment and hope for reward, then we are a sorry lot indeed. I'm guessing that many of us here would consider ourselves both non-believers and good moral human beings. So where do we get our morality from? Do we learn it from our parents? Or has it been formed from a consensus of our peers? Have we learned our morality from some ancient text? Or did it come from our genes? Deeply religious people in our country would say that the primary source of moral values is found in the scriptures, since they have been passed uh, to man from the hand of God. These moral lessons are considered absolute and unchanging over time. These moral lessons come in many forms, for example, the Ten Commandments or a biblical character that serves as a moral role model. What is clear is that those that base their morality literally on the Bible have neither, neither read the Bible nor understand it. At least in the Old Testament, God does not come across as a great moral role model. Noah's flood and Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac come to mind. The former is a real story of genocide, and the latter is child abuse on two levels. Many Christians would protest and say that these stories should not be taken as literal fact, but allegory. But if Christians are to pick and choose which stories are to be followed literally and which stories are allegorical, then what guides them in their decision? Which moral benchmark do they use to select the good moral stories from the bad? And does this decision change over time? Then perhaps morality is relative in the, to the times that we live in. The Catholic Church, the self-proclaimed custodian moral truth, likes to believe that moral behavior and attitudes of the church have been consistent through time, that its current moral beliefs are absolute and represent the unchanging truth as given by God. But history has shown that the Catholic Church has changed its moral teachings over the years on a number of issues without ever admitting to its previous position have been wrong. For example, the fact that for 1,800 years, the popes and the church did not condemn slavery. But until the 17th century, popes in the strongest terms condemned loans as, with interest as violating God's law. So if morality, even Catholic morality, is not absolute, where do we get our morality from? Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, proposes that our morality comes from a broad-based consensus, a consensus that has no obvious connection with religion, although it extends to most religious, religious people. 
This is very appealing to a humanist like me, that our true morality comes from the core of our humanity and is not imposed from the outside. While these are obvious exceptions, the vast majority of human beings do not cause needless suffering. We believe in free speech and protect it even though we may disagree with what is being said. We pay our taxes, we don't cheat, we don't kill, we don't do things to others that we would not wish them done to us. Dawkins calls this moral consensus the moral zeitgeist. Zeitgeist is German for time spirit or spirit of the times. Whether religious organizations like it or not, the moral zeitgeist does not stand still. It continually evolves in society, <clears throat> often in opposition to religious morality. But what is really interesting is that the shifting moral zeitgeist <clears throat> changes on a time scale of decades, and we are all aware of how it changes. Compare our attitudes towards racism, sexism, or war over the last 50 years, and you can get a sense for the moral zeitgeist moves, usually in the direction of becoming more liberal and gentle. There have been temporary reversals, and Dawkins uses the conservative movement in the United States as an example. But there are obvious progressive directions, there's an obvious progressive direction in the moral zeitgeist. Dawkins likes to represent the moral zeitgeist as a slowly climbing sawtooth graph, meaning we go up and then we fall back a little bit. So, Bush, Trump. <laughs> the zeitgeist shifts on a broad front across countries and religions. For example, female suffrage is a fairly recent reform in terms of human history. The dates where the women were granted the vote show how quickly and broad the zeitgeist shifts. So women were given the right to vote in these countries. And New Zealand was in 1893, one of the first. Finland, 1906. The United States, 1920. We're about to celebrate a centennial. Britain, 1928. France, 1945. Switzerland, 1971. The United Arab Emirates, 2006, and Saudi Arabia in 2011. What's important here is that with this one moral issue, countries as socially different as France and Saudi Arabia are undergoing the same moral change within decades of one another. The moral zeitgeist moves on a broad front and changes on a time scale of decades rather than centuries. The change is so quick that the progressive opinion of one generation typically lags behind the conservative opinion of a future generation. Abraham Lincoln was far ahead of his time, but his time, the 19th century, when just about everyone would be considered racist by today's standards. This is what he said in 1858. I will say then that I am not, nor have never been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the black and white races. I am not, nor have ever been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor qualifying them to hold office, nor intermarry with white people. I will say in addition to this, there is no physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social, political equality, and inasmuch they cannot so live. While they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And, as, and I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. That was Abraham Lincoln. It's obviously not fair to judge what Lincoln said here against moral standards today. These words would not have shocked Lincoln's contemporaries as it does to even the most conservative members of our generation. 
in the 19th century when sailors first landed on Mauritius and saw the gentle dodos, it never occurred to them to do anything else other than to club them to death. They didn't even want to eat them. Dodos were described as impalatable. Nowadays, this behavior is unthinkable. Extinction by deliberate human killing is regarded as a tragedy. Dawkins does not give a reason for the shifting moral zeitgeist in his book. He uses it to explain why we most certainly don't get our morality from religion. So why is it synchronized across so many people? It's believed that the moral zeitgeist spreads itself from mind to mind through conversations at work and friendly groups over a cup of coffee, homemade blueberry cobbler here at the fellowship, through books, book reviews, through newspapers, and advancements in science. The changes in the moral climate are signaled in editorials, on talk shows, political speeches, and stand-up comics. We don't all move at the same rate. Some of us lag behind the advancing wave of the changing moral zeitgeist, and some are slightly ahead. But most of us are bundled together and way ahead of our counterparts in the Middle Ages. Progressive thinkers of Victorian times would find themselves behind the moral conservative thinkers of today. So what moves it in its consistent direction? It's driven by individual leaders who are ahead of their time that stand up and persuade the rest of us to move on with them. Rachel Carson comes to mind, Gandhi, Martin Luther King. We even acknowledge this in our UU sources, the words and deeds of prophetic men and women which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, <coughs> compassion, and transforming power of love. <coughs> Education and science certainly drives the shifting moral zeitgeist. For example, all humans are biologically the same. Could Lincoln have said that, if what he did, had he had been aware of that science? The conflict in the shifting moral zeitgeist. It's clear to see as the moral center shifts that not all people will follow. Many will stubbornly try to prevent the moral zeitgeist from moving forward, while others may wish to push the moral zeitgeist out further and faster than most people can absorb change. The domestic moral battlegrounds are the debates, and this is again from 2007 now, the domestic moral battlegrounds are the debates on stem cell research, the death penalty, and gay rights. All these issues are contentious today, but how will we see them in 20 or 50 years? Will we have formed the moral consensus and moved on? Stem cell research involves removing cells from embryonic blastocytes, where a fertilized human egg has divided into a collection of four to 10 cells. When the stem cells are harvested, the blastocytes will die, which some feel represent human life. These undifferentiated cells have the potential of regrowing damaged tissue and, among other things, the pancreas spinal cord, enabling a permanent treatment for diabetes and paralysis. This moral issue has been closely linked to abortion and stem cell research and is currently prohibited, this is in 2007, from using federal funds by federal law. But the moral zeitgeist has moved past the beliefs of our current presidential administration, and this time was, that was Bush W., other countries have picked up the research and the U.S. has left behind and states like California and New Jersey have passed their own legislation promoting stem cell research using state and private funds. As people become better educated, the benefits of stem cell research and truly understand what embryonic blastocysts are, 
their moral view of the issue shifts towards what the beliefs of society as a whole. So as soon as um, Obama took office, he overturned the legislation which prohibited the use of stem cells and opened it up, I think, to uh, a bigger cell line of 75 cells. And I think since then, there's been a, a, a kind of lessening of the restrictions on, on using it. We've gotten past that. It's not an issue anymore. It's, people are generally have a consensus that this is a good thing. 91% of the death penalty executions in 2006 took place in China, Iran, Pakistan, Iraq, and the United States. It's nice company. While the rest of the Western world has long since moved away from capital punishment, many studies show that the death penalty does not deter murder. In fact, the two states with the highest execution rates, Florida and Texas, have seen an increase in murder rates after reinstating the death penalty in 1983. Again, many states have recognized this and have blocked the death penalty using state laws. We are far behind the moral zeitgeist of our European friends, where many find the use of the death penalty abhorrent. At some point in the future, I, I expect we will have the same moral view. Not yet. In 2004, the presidential election had same-sex marriage proposals in 11 states. Without exception, all 11 were defeated. That's in 2004. In this case, the moral zeitgeist has not moved far enough in the direction for Americans to absorb the change. We all know this change will come, but it will take some time to bring others along. And as we know, um, during, I think, the Obama administration, right, there was a, a Supreme Court decision that, I think, in 2015. So right now, I took a look, and there are 29 countries, including the United States, uh, that have uh, um, opened up to same-sex marriage. We were in the middle. A lot, of, a lot of countries came. I think the earliest one was the Netherlands in 2000. We were 2015. And I think uh, just recently, um, <clears throat> Germany in uh, 2017. The Middle East. I wonder if the conflict in the Middle East can be seen in terms of a shifting moral zeitgeist. The hatred we see towards Americans can be seen as resistance to the shifting moral zeitgeist in their own countries when spiritual leaders in the Middle East see a moral shift in their countries towards a morally aligned with the rest of the world, they are in fear that their beliefs will die out. Religious conservatives in the Middle East are not only fighting the shifting moral zeitgeist within their own countries, but are also compelled to force the rest of us back to a point somewhere in the past which is not acceptable to an enlightened individual. So the question is, where is the moral zeitgeist headed now, and is there a limit? What's interesting about the moral zeitgeist is predicting where it's headed and if, if there might be some limits in this progress. Human thought has progressively included more and more of existence into the category, is this something we should care for? If you think about equal rights, they started off with rich white men having equal rights, and then it was extended to all white straight men, and then it was all straight men, and then all straight men and women, and then all men and women, regardless of the sexual orientation, and then all human-like animals, and then all intelligent animals, and so on and so forth. So what seems to be correct now is to respect all humans, all animals, and the environment. So where do we go from here? What is, what is the next moral frontier? The welfare of our planet, the welfare of our solar system, this is in line with our seventh principle, the respect for the independent web of existence of which we are a part. 
And while the moral zeitgeist has the capacity to include more of existence into what, we, what it cares for, there are plenty of details left to shore up in its current scope. So some of the moral issues I, I wrote down here back in 2007, corporate CEO salaries, which we're still fighting in terms of income inequality, overfishing of our oceans, knowing that we have a limited ecosystem, religions that hurt their members, you know, do we ensure their rights if, if they're actually abusing? Immigration I put down as well. It's obviously a topic that's, that's on, our, on our list. So that's my talk. So it's kind of interesting. So even that, that small frame, that, that was 2007, so it was 12 years ago. And, and we've come across a few things, but there are a few things that remain, remain in light. Um, I'll open up to congregational sharing. Anybody have any comments at all?